The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. Come on, record. It is Wednesday, January 12th, 2022, 5 o'clock p.m. It is midnight in Kiev time, where our international Matt of Mystery, Matt Tate, uh, a.k.a. Pwn All the Things, is uh, joining us from, uh, we're going to go, we're going to inquire what the heck he is doing in Kiev uh, in a moment. But before we do, I just have something to say about the ellipsis. Now, the ellipsis, which is often known as three dots, or sometimes just dot, 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 is used to designate a sentence that is not Dot, space, dot, space, dot, dot. So if you run across a sentence that ends in an ellipsis, that means the sentence isn't finished yet. And if you run across a tweet that ends in an ellipsis and has another tweet in the thread, you should go to the next tweet in the thread to see the end of the sentence before you consider the sentence done and uh, uh, go on a uh, campaign against the person who is tweeting it because of the thing they said when the sentence ends, when it doesn't end because it's an ellipsis. So I just, that's a public service announcement. It's just about the punctuation mark, the ellipsis, what it does mean. (laughs) So when you see that ellipsis, the sentence isn't done. Okay. Dot, 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 dot. dot. (laughs) Because somebody may have more to say. Okay, when you see the ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. Wait, does Matt even know what this is about, though, Ben? No, I have no idea. Okay, so, ben, okay, so Matt, like, Matt, I will explain. Ben had a tweet about Stacey Abrams conceding um, and conceding, like, the election versus, like, did she concede, sure. which was, like, a whole debate. And then he ended, like, what a tweet thread, like, the first tweet was, like, but she did concede dot 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 and then it was like two i don't remember what the second tweet was but it was like two this type of thing it was like not like it here was not the election here's, here's and it the was sentence. like basically he just got ratioed of people sending him screenshots of the dip dictionary definition of conceding Amazing. Oh, him all of <laughs> all of right-wing twitter is angry at insane. me now because the first tweet in the thread says It's really not true. Abrams did not concede that the election was fair, but she did concede dot, 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 (laughs) picking up in the next uh, uh, tweet that under the rules as they were written and understood and implemented, her opponent had prevailed and would become governor. So I am getting large numbers of people explaining to me 
that uh, I don't know how to read. Um, uh, so anyway, I, I just public service announcement. The ellipsis means the sentence isn't over. All you have to do is keep reading. Okay. We're not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to have Matt Tate pwn all the things joining us from Kiev. Uh, Matt, what the fuck are you doing in Kiev? Uh, that's a good question. A lot of people ask me that. Um, so the, w w one of the things that's very important to me is sort of understanding what's going on in the world and getting local perspectives, because I think when you speak to people that are actually, you know, in the middle of things, you discover a lot about, you know, sort of the, uh, uh, a, a lot of aspects of what's going on that you don't really get if you're just sort of following them from a distance. Uh, and I had a bit of time and I wanted to, you know, come back to Kiev. I've, I've been here, you know, for uh, a, a while and I've been here several times in the past as well. And I just wanted to sort of get back here and sort of work out what was going on and speak with the, the folks that I know here. And what, uh, 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 what language do you speak when you're in Kiev? I know you speak good German uh, and I know you're uh, a, a native English speaker, but do you, do you speak any Slavic languages? I, I speak a tiny bit of Russian enough to be able to sort of buy myself a coffee and sort of navigate the, the, the shops, but like... Coffee <laughs> pleasure. But for the most part, actually, the you know, uh, unless you go, you know, quite a distance, um, you know, the, the professional language of most of what goes on here, you can get you know, a very, very long way with just English. The, the, uh, uh, sort of the, the level of English here is very high, which is not true in Russia. Depends where you are, like generally, no, but it, you're right. Um, all right. So what have you learned being in Kiev? Are, are we going to have a war? Is, uh, is, uh, uh, is, is everybody, uh, um, uh, watching Geneva with eyes peeled and, uh, what, what, what's, what's the mood in, 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 in Western Ukraine? Uh, I, it's, it's not amazing to, um, folk, some folks are, are watching, you know, what's going on this week with, you know, sort of uh, a keen interest. Um, I think there's a, a, a general sense that it's 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 not progressing. It's, it's not, you know, leading anywhere and sort of a, a general acceptance that, you know, it probably wasn't going to anyway. Um, I think there's a, you know, it, it depends very much on who you speak to. Different, like, uh, uh, information bubbles exist here. You know, uh, the general public at large my experience has been sort of uh, 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 a feeling that, you know, uh, the government sort of rattles that, you know, Russia's about to invade and, and does that a lot. And so a lot of people just sort of continuing with their lives. Uh, if you sort of speak with folks that are more in, you know, sort of attuned to what's going on on the front lines, uh, there's sort of an acceptance that it's, it's going to escalate and the debates are really about how it's going to escalate and, and where. Um, but I mean, the mood has, you know, substantially darkened in, in you know, recent weeks. Well, that's cheerful. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> um, um, so, um, uh, I'm, as an American viewer of this, I'm curious how people are reacting to U.S. policy, which seems to be to uh, 
uh, rule out any U.S. military involvement, but to promise significant uh, sanctions uh, and military aid to Ukraine, uh, both irrespective of Russia's actions, but also particularly if Russia were to launch military action uh, to, you know, make sure that Ukraine is is well armed. Are people, uh, uh, how has the reaction to the U.S. and British and NATO reaction been to uh, in 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 Ukraine? Uh, I the focus that I've seen from folks here has been on sort of U.S. and NATO through the context of the U.S. Uh, rather than, you know, I, I sort of appreciate that there's a lot of other countries in NATO and uh, for the most part, nobody really sort of is, is paying very much attention to them other than Germany for the perspective of Nord Stream 2. Um, but, you know, uh, uh, there's a lot of focus on what the U.S. is doing and I think a lot of, uh, you know, anger, honestly, um, and sort of depression as to, to how little is going on. Uh, you know, a sort of an expectation that more would have gone on, uh, you know, under perhaps other administrations or if uh, the U.S. has sort of led more strongly, you know, uh, uh, early on. Uh, and it's, it's, there's sort of definitely a sense of sort of abandonment here. Uh, you know, where Ukraine is sort of used to, you know, doing stuff by itself. And there's a lot of uh, uh, folks sort of very patriotic in, in that sort of sense. Uh, but, you know, there, there is a, a genuine feeling that, you know, the, the, they sort of wanted more from, you know, the EU and from the US, uh, you know, they wanted sort of closer alignment to them and they've sort of built a, a lot of their, you know, uh, uh, systems around, you know, uh, uh, trying to establish those links. And now that, you know, uh, uh, stuff is kicking off, they're, they're sort of looking at it and seeing, you know, the US and the EU not really there in the way that they sort of wanted them to be. And that's sort of a little bit bleak there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I, I got to say Ukraine is one of those um, is it's in a rough spot right now because it's not part it's not part of NATO. There's nobody has an alliance commitment to defend it. And yet it clearly, you know, wants the kind of Western orientation that you know, this isn't this isn't Finland, which has no. uh, which has, you know, for which neutrality has been, you know, a cornerstone of policy over a long period of time. It's a this is a country that wants a Western orientation precisely for purposes of of a defense arrangement. Yeah, there's also I mean, the, the U.S. has got this, you know, nice new slogan that they like to, you know, roll out, which is, you know, uh, uh, no talking about Europe without Europe, no talking about Ukraine without Ukraine. Um, but there's definitely a sense here of, you know, folks feeling like they're being talked about and not with, um, you know, uh, uh, the conversations that matter uh, are between, you know, Russia and the United States, like, functionally. Um, and, you know, there's a uh, a, a genuine resentment of, you know, uh, a lot of Western takes on, you know, what's going on that don't sort of appreciate, you know, that there's there's real people here that have to deal with the real consequences of, you know, what gets talked about. And, you know, shimming everything that happens in this part of the world into sort of 
almost two-dimensional cartoon characters and you know uh, established narratives without sort of trying to understand the region is, is upsetting i think um i'm curious uh what the reaction there has been to the kazakhstan uh developments um you know it, it has a bit of a look over here the subject just changed quality to it but if you're I, if you if you're in kiev is it a is it a uh uh a um a, a welcome distraction or a, a way it, of the world taking their eyes off of it it depends who you speak to honestly um the the folks that you know actually uh, uh know a lot about what happened in, in Kazakhstan, sort of understand that, you know, it's essentially wrapping up and it's wrapping up very quickly. The security situation there has sort of stabilized very rapidly. And I don't think that those folks ever really saw the, the Ukraine situation and the Kazakhstan situation as, you know, particularly aligned or particularly sort of comparable. Um, and I think those folks saw that as, you know, maybe this will be a distraction for a week, but probably not for, you know, a long time. It's not going to change anything. There's other folks here that didn't pay very much attention and sort of, you know, were, were cheering on what they sort of saw as a, a Maidan event, you know, taking place in Kazakhstan. I think that was sort of always, you know, relatively delusional. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I think if you sort of look at sort of the, the you know, uh, the Kazakhstan security situation has dramatically improved uh for you know the, the folks that are, are there at the moment and you know uh, uh the csto uh, uh troops are withdrawing um so there's no sort of ongoing likelihood of, of major distraction for any of the countries in the region and with the you know the the, the talks that are happening between you know uh, uh the united states and uh, russia through multiple mediums this week um, the attention seems to be very much back on, you know, what it was a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and it, it just seems to be continuing in that sense. So uh, merging your current uh, uh, exploits uh, and fact gathering with your general expertise, um, one of the things that the Russians have sometimes done to put pressure on Ukraine is turn off the electricity uh, uh, using, <laughs> using cyber, uh, attacks. Um, I'm curious what the, uh, uh, I assume part of the reason that you're in Kiev is, uh, cybersecurity related, although please correct me if not, what, what is the, uh, uh, there's been a lot of discussion about what the Russians can do militarily. Uh, I assume they can do a great deal more uh, without bothering with the military, uh, at least in the disruption and mayhem department. Uh, how bad is the cybersecurity situation? And it's it's pretty bad. Um, the the it, it sort of it focuses in sort of two different directions. So the one direction that you sort of mention is uh, sort of disruptive, you know, uh, attacks on infrastructure. Um, that's something that they've done in the past. Um, it's is a, a, a real concern, uh, but it's actually, despite it being a, a, a something that we sort of worry about a lot in sort of Western media and Western capitals, uh, it's 
a relatively minor concern compared with you know having a hundred thousand troops on your border um and so uh, uh, uh yes they've turned the power off with you know the the magical power of computers in the past uh but you know this is a country at war and if russia wants to turn off the power and they can't do it using magical computers then they're going to do it with you know traditional explosives um and so there's sort of a, a uh, the, the cybersecurity angle in that respect is is not good, but also not many people are focusing on it because uh, there's you know bigger things to worry about. Um, the other angle that's also you know quite troubling and quite difficult to get a handle on is the sort of uh, a control of the information space, uh, you know, and sort of uh, use of disinformation. Um, mm -hmm. I, there's not a lot of folks talking about it, but there's certainly, you know, a lot of, you know, uh, uh, inauthentic activity sort of taking place. There's a lot of, you know, behind the scenes, you know, wrangling over, you know, uh, what the, the narratives are in, you know, different places in, in different sort of areas across the country. Um, and not just through the use of, you know, computers, but also, you know, the, the sort of a, a relatively high level of sort of penetration just directly in the country too. Uh, and there's a lot of discussions about, you know, that and, you know, local political wrangling and, you know, uh, uh, oligarch power maneuvering and all of this kind of stuff, which is very difficult to sort of pass out with a, 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 a Western perspective and doesn't really sort of make it into international media. Okay. Setting aside a Western perspective on the situation there, are you finding any similarities in the information bubbles that you referenced and, or just the organization of those information bubbles um, in the United States now. Because when I consider cybersecurity and the discussions that we have and the discussions which frequently are with very specialized groups of people who are very heavily knowledgeable about it and how few of those make it into our mainstream conversation unless there's a very severe ransomware attack. Sure. Are, are you seeing any similarities? Is there anything that we could do to better change the conversation perhaps? Make us more aware? That's a very difficult question. <laughs> um, so, like, there, there's, I, I guess, one thing that I could say is that there's there's very different information environments if you sort of uh, consider the the local, you know, uh, what Ukrainians think versus you know what uh, uh, Russians are sort of talking about, and you know the the folks that are in, you know, uh, Russia and pay a lot of attention to you know sort of elite messaging that goes on there uh, versus you know the U.S. messaging. Um, and, you know, sometimes that's, they're all very much in conflict and often talking past each other in ways that are, are extremely unhelpful and actually don't provide very much space for off-ramps. Um, so, uh, 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 you, you see that in a lot of different directions. So, for instance, uh, uh, one of the horrific, you know, uh, uh, sort of uh, things that you occasionally see is, you know, clever slogans that sort of land in, in State Department uh, uh, statements which just, you know, go over like, you know, the Hindenburg. Uh, so uh, you'll remember Secretary Blinken said, you know, uh, 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 actually it was in respect to the Kazakhstan issue, you know, if Russians uh, are in your house, it's difficult to get them to leave. And, you know, uh, uh, the Russian government put out, you know, very strongly worded message in sort of uh, opposition to that, uh, in response to that. And it was, it was just, it, it, those types of sentences don't, add anything, they're not constructive. Uh, you know, or another example, uh, they've been sort of peppering into a lot of their, their 
uh, State Department releases recently, you know, uh, President Putin should concentrate on, on, you know, helping Russia to build back better, which, you know, I'm sure that, you know, sounds amazing from, you know, your apartment in DC, but like it, it, it doesn't add anything. It's unhelpful, you know, uh, uh, any lines that are clever in the State Department release prior to war should just be stricken. Like there's, there's no value to them. <laughs> um, but it, you also see it with regards to things like, you know, NATO expansion. Right, you know, uh, uh, Russia has their positions on it. You know, the U.S. has its positions on it. NATO has its positions on it. Ukraine has its positions on it, and they're all very much in conflict with each other. And they, all different sides, have very much boxed themselves in on this issue and been very loud about it. And it's extremely difficult to see how to unwind these particular collection of red lines in a way that doesn't lead you inevitably towards conflict. Do you think that perhaps that? we would need there to be a private actor in that situation who has their own set of pers like interests that is serving both communities that could somehow provide a different um, set of priorities that the different groups could agree, agree upon. I'm, I'm not really sure I'm going with this, but just like a third party that's not a government actor within those conversations. Do you think that would be useful? I and mean, we've tried that type of thing in the past. The problem is that those third parties end up, you know, being uh, either populated by, you know, uh, members from the individual countries who then talk past each other or, you know, additional places where, you know, you can get different roadblocks. Um, I think one of the things that, that would be extremely useful is to sort of amplify, you know, uh, uh, regional expert voices on, you know, uh, uh, some of these topics. You know, there's a, a lot of folks uh, uh, in Russia who sort of study this, you know, uh, uh, sort of elite messaging inside Russia and, you know, it would be much more useful for them to be writing op-eds in the New York Times than for people like Brett Stevens to be writing op-eds in the New York Times uh, about these types of issues. Um, and it's, it's um, you know, uh, it, it's also very difficult because, you know, sometimes there's, you know, very strong views that are sort of projected publicly, which are not necessarily aligned with, you know, private views. Uh, which they can't express, uh, you know, uh, uh, for instance, uh, 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 Ukraine is very, you know, adamant that, you know, they would like to be part of NATO at some point, um, you know, in all public communications, but also in private, nobody's under any, you know, illusions that that's going to happen in the next, you know, 30, 40 years. Um, and so when you start to look at those types of questions and, you know, NATO's sort of very adamant as well, you know, they've made it very clear today, you know, well, we want to have this open door policy, we're never going to close it. And Russia saying, you know, well, you know, that, that sounds like a you problem, you need to, to work that out. Um, it's, it's very difficult to see, everybody's talking past each other and not trying to get to, they're so busy sort of establishing red lines that are almost theological. Uh, but but what does a what does a uh, non-theological? I mean, NATO can't give up the principle that countries that want to join NATO that uh, meet the criteria for joining NATO uh, uh, because they want defense from Russia can join NATO. They just can't give that up. So what does the nor, nor can it realistically give up the, uh, oh, we'll pull all the NATO forces out of the relatively new NATO members, uh, you know, the Baltics and Poland and 
uh, Romania and stuff, uh, because that'll make Putin feel better. Uh, so what what does the practical arrangement that assuages uh, uh, Putin here look like that is not basically uh, we acknowledge Ukraine to be within your sphere of influence and will never there will never a NATO force troop will never set foot on Ukrainian soil. And by the way, we're very sorry to have admitted your former vassal states into NATO and we'll certainly pull all heavy weapons out of there. Like, what does it look like realistically? I mean, it's a, it's a good question. I think when you're at a point where you have, you know, uh, lots of red lines that are in direct conflict with each other and everybody's being very loud and boxed themselves in, uh, you, you need to get very creative to come up with ways of trying to get off ramps in all directions where everybody's going to be unhappy ultimately. Um, you know, so, uh, uh, one thing that you could do, for instance, is you could change the criteria for entry such that it's sort of uh, objectively clear in Russia that, you know, Ukraine and to a lesser extent Georgia are never going to, you know, realistically ever be members of the alliance while still maintaining the fiction that uh, uh, anyone that meets those criteria can in fact join. And so then you have an off-ramp so NATO can say we still have our, you know, uh, uh, open door policy and, you know, Russia has its ability to say, well, Ukraine and Georgia are never going to join. And, you know, Ukraine will be very unhappy that it can't join uh, ever in future, but the pragmatists here will realize that that wasn't going to happen anyway. So, like, nobody will be happy in that situation because nobody got what they want. But, you know, you've managed to, you know, perhaps construct something that, you know, gives you an off-ramp to, you know, avoid troops deciding the, the, the but, outcome. But hang on a second. If the question is, as a practical matter, is Ukraine going to join NATO or, I mean, like, what is Ukraine's GDP per capita? It's about $3,500 a year or something. Um, I think so. Poland's is about five times that, four, four mm -hmm. times that. Romania is about is that true? yeah. Romania is about three times that. I would not have put Poland above Ukraine. Yeah, Poland's like, you okay. know oh, it's pretty wealthy, rich, but... pretty rich country now. And yeah, no, no. I mean, like now that I'm thinking about it a little bit more, but like I think that like there's like some priors from when I was like in, right. It's you know, it, the 90s, it ain't the nineties anymore. Yeah. You know, the countries that have joined Romania, Ukraine, uh, Poland, uh, that have joined the EU have prospered and thrived and the countries that have remained uh on russia's periphery that are not the baltic states uh have really stagnated ukraine's gdp i mean to put this all in perspective what like what did we say like the russian gdp was the same as italy and then like so what were like poland would be well, like we're, what we're talking gdp that, per like, capita like, right now and I'm just I'm just somebody oh, should check okay, these sorry. numbers as I do them because I'm just rattling I'm I'm just kind of making them up based on a kind of ballpark sense, but my sense of Russia is probably about ten or eleven thousand dollars per head per year uh, per capita GDP. Ukraine's probably about thirty five hundred. Okay. Poland, Romania is going to be more like twelve to fifteen. So you have a big just a big, big per capita wealth gap here. 
Um, and, you know, once you get outside of Kiev, Ukraine's pretty poor. And so, like, like I don't think realistically Ukraine has much to offer NATO until it gets its internal house together, and unless the NATO strategic objective is to push up right against Russia and be really assertive, which I don't think is actually what NATO wants to do right now. And so my, my question is, if, if, if the goal, if, if Putin's goal is to prevent Ukraine from joining NATO in the short term, all he has to do is nothing, right? Yeah, I mean, the problem is that he's also boxed himself in. <laughs> so, like, he, he needs to be able to deliver something in order to, you know, have that off-ramp. And I think it's also, it's, it's completely fair to say that, you know, that was self-inflicted, right? You know, he sort of boxed himself in on purpose for sort of, you know, pressuring, you know, whatever. Um, but it's also, nobody wants conflict and finding ways to help him get himself out of that situation if that's something that he wants to take uh isn't necessarily a bad idea uh whether or not he wants to take that is of course a different question but you know yeah I'm so I think that Ben's Ben are you want to take us into cyber yeah let's let's what uh, were you thinking let's talk uh and I have to jump off in like a second, but um, I'm I'm he I was here for the kind of the cyber discussion too, and I just like really wanted to like I was interested, in Matt, in your thoughts on like everything that's happened. I didn't know you were in Kiev at the moment, so that's even more interesting. Um, but like, but yeah. Um, well, what are I want to know thinking, why ben? we haven't had any big hacks recently. It's been a few months, and, <laughs> and it's been a few months, and it just seems to me the international hacking com com community has really fallen down on the job. We haven't had, um, you know, and, and ransomware some more oil refineries. Then is that what you're we saying? Yeah, we haven't like, you know, had to have an emergency. We haven't had an emergency. Had to have an emergency podcast with you and Dmitry Alperovich for a while. It's uh, it feels like, um, uh, you know, the hackers are kind of fucking slacking and all getting COVID or something. They're all preparing for Ukraine, Ben. <laughs> the ransomware variants have been very subdued. Do you think that there is a density of hackers in various parts of the world? I mean, obviously, we know that we have spent a lot of time focused in the U.S. kind of meddling of elections and other types of things of like, the, you know, the, like the, the, you know, Russia and um, Eastern Bloc and things like that. But is there like, is there a a sense in your mind of like, wait, is Ben serious? Do they all have COVID? Like, I don't understand. Is that a joke? Like, I don't actually know. I love it when I can give a little and like nobody knows I, if I, I'm joking. I but like, but maybe you're like, what? But like, is it? Well, like, wouldn't that be fascinating if there was like a lull in dis and misinformation because like there's no one pushing it? No, because, the dis like, and misinformation all... people, the information ops people, are all immune from COVID. They've they've actually just done fine. But no, but 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 like but I am kind of curious, like there was um 
Oh God, the log four J, like all of like the kind of all of that kind of stuff. We never, saw, I like it just kind of faded, and so I live with a programmer, and so like it faded out of our like um, it faded out of our universe. It was very present in his work for a while, and there was like um, and like and some other things, and like I'm just curious, like it faded and then it's disappeared, and I haven't heard any more mention of it. Like, but that doesn't make me I, think I, I that think, like I it's think. been patched. I think some of this is just like the compression of time that happens because you know the the New Year's period has been so news dense. The the, the log four J stuff was right before Christmas, uh, so we're, we're talking. Yeah, we, we were, I know because we I were know. working all through. We he was working all through <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> yeah, so and that, uh, yeah. that was three weeks ago, and that that was genuinely very large. And you know, a lot of the the folks in in cybersecurity have been sort of. Uh, having to deal with the, the the fallout of that because it affects it's, it's a uh, an issue that relates to you know a, a component that's uh, built into a very large number of other applications and that means that you need to you know go through all of those other applications in order to you know uh, uh, update them and so there's just this colossal colossal amount of work that was there and I think you know uh, it's easy to think that, you know, uh, maybe there's not been anything big that's happened, you know, recently, but that's, you know, first of all, that was three weeks ago. And second of all, during that period, we had uh, Christmas, we had New Year's, we had like the Kazakhstan crisis, we had the January 6th uh, sort of uh, anniversary. anniversary, we had, you know, uh, 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 Ukraine security news sort of uh, dominating. And I think uh, there's only so many columns that exist in any given newspaper, like something has to fall off. Well, one of the things, and I don't want to like, uh, this will be my last question, because then I have to, as I said, I have to, I have to jet, but there is, um, I'm really curious into like, into your thinking, I'm in the midst of kind of like researching a lot of interoperability things, and generally, uh, solutions to kind of a lot of the tech policy problems that we have today, like, what would we do if like, we think these tech platforms are too big? How do we solve these with like, leveraging interoperability? What are the tra I mean, and like, you're familiar with this, not like there's like this huge sure. trade off between you make something interoperable, and you make it less safe. And you also make it easier and more convenient. And you make it cheaper and you make it kind of like, um, and so there's like, there's all of these trade-offs and like, I was just kind of interviewing someone from kind of the antitrust sector talking about the interoperability of local and long distance networks in AT&T and kind of like the Bell technology system. And he was just saying that like, yeah, well, if you look at communications technology and you look at the actual engineering capacity that made that happen, it was like actually incredibly difficult. Um, similar with the AOL Time Warner merger when they man mandated the interoperability of instant messenger, it was like a huge lift to kind of like make these systems interoperable. They were not interoperable. It required a lot of work from a lot of people. Um, and, um, layer onto that the kind of encrypted networks that we have now um and the encryption that we have now and is there any easy solution that you can possibly see to make an encrypted network interoperable like i i'm maybe i'm asking like i know that i'm kind of asking a big question but i'm just kind of curious and like alice is rolling her eyes because she's like kate this is the dumbest question ever but there is like sorry alice is like a programmer also but um uh, but I'm just like, I'm very curious, like, I am very sensitive to the pragmatic concerns of policy suggestions. So I'm just kind of very interested in your thoughts on this. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's 
if, if, if you spend a lot of time, you know, uh, uh, with uh, our programmers or, or being a programmer yourself, one of the things that sort of becomes very obvious is that developing new things is relatively, I mean, I don't want to say too straightforward, but, you know, it's something that can be done by a, a small number of people. Um, but making something that's already big and established work with other things can become a, a surprisingly large lift. Uh, yeah. Because there's a lot of different moving parts to it. And, you know, there's this problem of backwards compatibility that, you know, uh, uh, some people are using uh, old pieces of software to interact with, you know, one thing in, you know, uh, one protocol and one language, and other people are using different things in other places. Uh, and getting them all to agree on upgrading to all talk to each other when there's different features and different things, when there's different, you know, underlying protocols and different things, uh, when you don't want to break everything that already exists out there that, you know, you know, ma major things might depend on uh, is, you know, an astronomic lift often. And yeah, it, I mean, it's, it's sometimes easy for policymakers to see that some things in tech are easy and to assume that that means that all things in tech are easy and, and often uh, uh, the, the, the sort of the, 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 the policy direction sort of forces them to, to undertake, you know, colossal, colossal, you know, uh, a work in order to try and get things to work together. And then you, instead of having, you know, three small problems that are tractable to work with, you have one colossal problem that now is immovable. Right. No, I think that that is exactly right. And I do think that the over, well, I, I do think that there's just like a language barrier, frankly, in, in between engineers and programmers and policymakers. I just think that it's like, we need more translators between those spaces. There's just not one enough people to understand. Alice. Yeah. One of the, sorry, Ben, we're Alice and Alice. Sorry. <laughs> I'll shut up. But it was nice to talk to you, Matt. Thank you so much. See you, you guys too. later. Alice, the floor is yours. Thank you. I'm back and I have the loudest refrigerator yet. So <laughs> my third Vienna apartment and it's extremely loud. Excellent. Um, I'm, I, I think it's not really you without a loud refrigerator. Okay. Yeah. Although like, you're very quiet. <laughs> okay. I will. Let's see. Is this better? Ah! <laughs> okay. No, I get the full effect now. Oh yeah, it's it's pretty bad. Um, uh, okay, so I'm going to try to combine two of my questions. Uh, so if I was hoping you could kind of give a background about what your connections are to Ukraine, and sort of how you can connect uh, your, you know, sort of just popping by to see how their uh, invasion's going, uh, with sort of your cybersecurity background, and then I'm also interested in just how you think about pocket by to see how the invasion is going. How do you think about the threats to yourself? Are there places you wouldn't go in Ukraine right now? Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, we're going to we're going to dismiss you uh, at your refrigerator, Alice. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was for, really good to for see the preservation you. of everybody's ears. Uh, but it is super great to see you, Alice. Uh, and Matt, uh, the floor is once again yours. Sure. So I mean, I started paying attention to, you know, Ukraine and sort of the, the uh, uh, some of the regions close to it, you know, uh, professionally decade and a bit ago, uh, and, you know, uh, uh, started coming here, you know, infrequently then, uh, and, you know, it's, it's become ever more and more sort of important, uh, especially after 2014. You know, I spent a bunch of time in the regions, so I know a bunch of people that are, are here, uh, got lots of friends that, you know, I've, I've kept in contact with over the years here. 
uh, and you know I had a, a little bit of time, and I want to you know uh, uh, come back and uh, you know actually uh, uh, have some conversations that are a, a little bit difficult to have you know from a distance. Uh, so uh, that's that's how I ended up here, and you know it's it's sort of the center of a lot of different areas that I'm very interested in. Uh, you know, it's sort of the, the center of the cybersecurity world at the moment because of the, the conflict, because of, you know, issues that it's had in the past as well. Uh, it's certainly the center of the, the geopolitical world at the moment, for, you know, no fault of its own. Unfortunately, it's sort of getting talked over a lot uh, by the US and by Russia and by the EU. Um, and it, it's, it's very important to sort of get local perspectives on, you know, what's possible. I think there's a lot of, uh, folks here that know what's necessary and there's folks overseas that know what's possible and sometimes getting people that you know can speak to both of those so that you can be a little bit more creative and think of you know uh, uh this is what's possible and this is what's necessary maybe we can do it in this way uh sometimes sort of having people to bounce those ideas off is useful all right janine balekchian the floor is yours Hi everyone. Um, hi Matt. I am a long-term Twitter fan of yours, so uh, it's very exciting to actually be talking to you. Sure. <laughs> um, my question is: You had mentioned, or part of your analysis, I think correctly, is that Putin, among all the other actors, has boxed himself in on this situation, and now, um, even though there's no genuine possibility of Ukraine joining NATO anytime in the foreseeable future. He needs to get something to save face so that he can de-escalate. And so my question is, given that it seems to be true that Ukraine is not joining NATO anytime in the, in the foreseeable future, that there's really very little appetite on NATO's part for that kind of imminent expansion, uh, why did Putin get himself in this situation to begin with? Do you think that it's genuine paranoia on his part that you really did think this is a possibility? Or do you think that it's a um, need to shore up support domestically or what what why do you think we're here uh okay um so i'm i'm it's a good question right it is a good it's, question it's um, not like it's not like any event said to putin last fall we must have a crisis in ukraine right now no and it, it's <laughs> a, a crisis entirely of his, of his construction and I, I think that it's, it's important to sort of acknowledge that um so I'm, I'm, I'm certainly no criminologist. Like there's, there's, you know, even people that you know are hardened criminologists uh, are really are struggling to, you know, work out what he's doing and why, you know, uh, at the best of times. Um, my general like experience of, of these types of crises is that they're they they happen for domestic elite reasons rather than you know geopolitical reasons. Um, you know, uh, uh, I, I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, Putin's getting old, he's looking at his legacy, you know, he's, you know, thinking about his, you know, uh, 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 personal security situation, you know, when, you know, power transfers, you know, he's uh, 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 has his own domestic issues that relate to, you know, uh, uh, the economy inside Russia and, and sort of elite power uh, structures within Russia. Um, and, you know, this is a, a helpful uh, distraction uh, from domestic issues, uh, I, I think there's there's some legitimacy, uh, or perhaps legitimacy is the wrong word. Uh, he, he sort of um, 
his his expressed concerns about NATO, I think that he genuinely believes them, or at least people around him believe them, and they've sort of, uh, uh, whether or not it's delusional is sort of beside the point, you know, that doesn't mean that they don't genuinely believe it. Uh, and, you know, uh, uh, trying to pass out, you know, where the, the sort of the propaganda ends and the, the sort of the, 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 the delusion begins is, you know, a, a difficult line to sort of uh, pass out. Um, but he's, he's boxed himself in. If you, if you look at his, you know, uh, end of year speech, if you look at the uh, messaging that's come out of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, especially since, you know, December, if you look at the way that they've, you know, uh, maneuvered uh, forces towards the border, it, it looks like they've been trying to remove their own off-ramps. Um, it looks like they've been, you know, structuring this around the idea that they're going to invade and they need a pretext for invasion. And the the way to respond to that is you need to give them, you know, uh, uh, carrots to not invade, uh, sticks to not invade, and off ramps so that they can actually have the the mechanism to avoid it. Uh, and you know, we have, I think, a lot of work to do on all three of those fronts. I'm not sure we have a lot of time to do very much. In Mr. Godwin, the floor Hi, is yours. You are you gonna Are you gonna call Matt Tate a Nazi? Uh, I I don't think he needs that from me, or, or that anyone ever needs that from me. I, uh, I was gonna, Matt. I are you gonna questions. call Mike Godwin a Nazi? Well, then I would lose the conversation, Ben. <laughs> All right. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna not be proving Godwin's law here. Uh, excellent, excellent. Uh, so the. Uh, I had two questions. One was about the four dot uh, ellipsis, but the other one, I'm just going to combine my questions. I just want to point and, out, if you look at the tweet in question, it's a three dot ellipsis. It does know, not suggest the end of a sentence. So you I, can I, accept the I, premise I of your you. question and it does not undermine my monologue. I, I know. I'm not trying to undermine your monologue. I'm actually just trying to supplement it. Uh, okay. Um, yes, we agree. The four dot, it would have been perfectly reasonable for everybody to assume uh, if I had had a fourth dot there. I, I think a four dot ellipsis or Hitler can end the tweet. I mean, it's just That's up right. to you. That's which, right. Which way you want to go. What about uh, Hitler dot dot dot? You know, I'm just going to try to combine my dot. questions uh, now for, for this. I, I, my questions really, I, I basically, as someone who's, you know, watched the developments uh, after the uh, fall of the Soviet Union with a lot of interest, I, I keep asking myself these questions. Was there a moment historically where we could have uh, set both our relationship with the Russian Federation and the situation for Ukraine in a better place than they are now? And what were our missed opportunities? And did we just lack, um, did we just lack vision or four dot ellipses? I have a thoughts on the answer to this, but Matt, you, you first. Uh, okay. So my, I'm, I'm no historian on the region, I, but I, I do think that uh, there's, there has been a lot of missed opportunities. And I think there's also been a lot of interactions between Russia and the West that have sort of cemented a slide uh, that, you know, uh, uh, we, it, it's, it's not unilateral in the sense that, you know, it's, it's not just the West's fault that, you know, this slide has taken place. But I think that there's things that we could have done and should have done and can still do to try and you know improve relations and i think that, that 
even as we come into conflict on you know a, a very wide range of things trying to find ways to improve relations over the long term is always a good thing because the better the relations are the more credible your threats of damaging those relations become uh you know uh, 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 in terms of things like sanctions um and in the event that you just have this you know uh, a slide, you know, this sort of sanction slide where we put on more and more sanctions. Eventually, you just get to a point where, you know, uh, uh, they've given up on on any hope that that stick is going to be useful. But for instance, you know, during the 90s, I think there was uh, a lot of opportunities for, you know, normalizing relations and, and the West didn't take a lot of the, the things, uh, a lot of choices that uh, uh, sort of missed choices that were made at the time. I think there's also a lot of sort of uh, uh, sort of appeals to you know Soviet history that I think are, are unhelpful and, and sort of borderline xenophobic that don't help um, but you know one of the things that right now is also very unhelpful is the the sort of essentially the closure of, of borders between you know Russia and the West it's very difficult for you know folks in the middle class in Russia to leave it's very difficult for folks in the middle class in the West to go there uh, you know, partly due to the pandemic, partly due to, you know, the embassy closures and the, the lack of visa processing that's going on there. And I think that these things add to the information bubbles of the two countries diverging in ways that mean that both see the other through sort of a, a two-dimensional cartoon prism, uh, you know, where uh, Putin has become, you know, this uh, uh, a cartoon all-seeing villain who, you know, uh, as sort of the, the, the master of the entire region uh, with no sort of appeal to, you know, the, the elite structures that are there to, you know, the other countries in the region to, you know, his mistakes to his own, you know, uh, lack of good information sources in ways that are unhelpful to everybody ultimately. Yeah, I just want to add to that. I'm curious, GDF, if you have any thoughts on this, but... Uh, there one of one of the basic problems is that there was a radical change in russian policy in sure. the late 90s and you know if the question is is there a different moment where uh where things could have been different well the answer is sure it was the moment when putin came to power and and decided that what russia needed was a kind of redemptive revisionist approach to the yeah. growth of Western power in Europe over the course of the previous decade. And, you know, um, he, there's no way to prevent him from feeling that way. Um, I do think the um, problem of Ukraine was that we left it in a, uh, um, in an uncertain state. So with respect to the Eastern European non-Russian countries, um, Poland, Romania, uh, Czech Republic, etc., uh, those got incorporated into NATO and, you know, the Russians grumble about it, but they're not, there's nothing they can or will do about it. Uh, with respect to the Baltics, uh, this is a real sore spot for the Russians, but so what? I mean, it's it's a it's a matter that they have to eat. Um, 
the thing about Ukraine that makes it distinctive is that it wants to be part of that group, and it can, it's in its constitution that it you know wants to be part of NATO. Um, but that it was not ready in the period of the 90s, and it still isn't ready in terms of eligibility criteria. And so I think the point at which things could have been different is if we had been more aggressive in the 90s or substantially less aggressive. I think if we'd been less aggressive, we would have just left countries out to be more like Georgia and, you know, the predations on the Baltics would have been awful. But if we'd been more aggressive and just said, okay, we're going to we're going to go right up to the Russian border in Ukraine um, uh, and we'd done it in the Yeltsin period when Russian policy was much more accommodating. Uh, yes, it would have been a source of great resentment right now, but the contours of the of the borders would have been much more better established. And, I, you know, I, I don't usually say, hey, we should have been much more aggressive. But my reaction to the NATO enlargement controversy is we left this big question out there. And so he's using it as a wedge to try to undo stuff. But so much of policy making is a big question, and often that serves literally as a sword to shield to our benefit. What distinguishes this for you from what we're doing right now with regards to the Middle East? Well, the, the difference is there's no NATO in the Middle East, you know? Oh, that, that, yes, that, that's, that's, that, that's true. You know, we have very significant alliance commitments and look, the, I, I want to give Putin his due for a minute on this, because I think Americans sometimes don't do it. But Russians feel threatened by NATO, and they should, because the whole purpose of NATO is to protect Europe from the Russians. And the Russians have kind of traditional imperial aspirations in, Western, in Eastern Europe, and to some extent in Western Europe, too. And NATO is designed to thwart those ambitions. And, um, and it is a perfectly reasonable thing if you are a great Russian nationalist, whether you call it the Soviet Union or whether you call it you know, the Tsarist Empire or whether you call it the Russian Federation. It is a great, it is a perfectly reasonable thing for for you to see NATO as the principal impediment to your objectives. That's why it was formed. And the reason Ukraine wants to be part of NATO is to protect it from the Russians. And so if you happen to be Russian, it's not an unreasonable thing at all to say, hey, NATO's part of the problem here. The problem from an American point of view with giving too much credit to this idea is that there's the small matter of the sovereign legitimacy of the other states, right? And we actually purport to believe that Ukraine is an independent country and should be able to be defended from neighborly aggression, even if it's from Slavic brothers. That's true to an extent. Uh, I'm, you know, we, we sort of make this case that, you know, Ukraine should be able to join NATO at some point, you know, the, that that's up to Ukraine. But then actually when push comes to shove, we don't actually like enable that. Well, but and that's I... kind of my point. When when Mike asks, could things have been different? The answer is 
yeah, if we were a little bit less apt to, to, you know, this is true of Georgia too. Um, you know, if we had made the full investment and said, okay, if you're really going to be re actually a democratic market economy and be, you know, uh, and meet NATO's military commitments, you can join NATO. I think Russia would be, would have less latitude right now to try to be pushing back against the premise. Yeah. And also not, not sort of labor the point, but in, you know, post 2014 and around 2014 with the, the sort of Maidan events, I think also there was a lot of missed opportunities there. You know, Ukraine went through at that point a, a sort of a, a, a much higher sort of uh, a tempo alignment towards, you know, Europe, uh, towards sort of expecting eventual integration into, you know, uh, the minimum EU and you know, perhaps long term towards NATO. And I think the, the EU and NATO gave an impression that that was on the cards, which they then very rapidly sort of, you know, backed off from. And I think, you know, perhaps Ukraine was naive to believe those assurances, but certainly, you know, Europe and NATO should not have made them. Uh, and I, I think that that's led to a lot of long-term issues here and a lot of angst in Russia. And Ukraine now finds itself very much alone in the world, uh, feeling, you know, quite honestly betrayed by, you know, uh, uh, people that it thought it was going to, you know, be closer to. Charles, you get the last question today. I have an, I actually have an information security question. Uh, oh, can you guys hear me all right? Uh, so, Matt, you've got experience in both the U.S. and the U.K. What are some, I guess, some things the U.S. could learn from the U.K. InfoSec-wise that are, I guess, I'm going to make a quick change, that are applicable? And what are some things the U.K. could learn from the U.S. Um, in terms of information security, either in private or public sector, your choice? Sure. I mean, that's a difficult question because the, the sort of the structures of the two countries, although we, we speak the same language, you know, we, we're quite different in a lot of different ways. Um, and, you know, one of the ways that the UK, I think, does relatively well is that it's a relatively centralized, you know, smallish country. Uh, you know, that means that they can, uh, you know, they, they, they don't have the same sort of level of separation between, you know, uh, government and private sector when it comes to, you know, being able to share information uh, they're relatively sort of uh, straightforward about it and you know companies are willing to go to you know the NCSC uh, for sort of advice and I think that sort of is helpful to them in a way that doesn't transfer directly to the US uh, you know the US is, is colossally fragmented uh, both in terms of the private sector and in terms of the government uh, you definitely see that in terms of you know for instance a uh, uh, state and local agencies struggle to, you know, do information security very well on their own systems, and the federal government is not really able to sort of impose externally that, you know, information security will be improved on those systems in a way that the UK can. Uh, and I think that's, that's one area that I think the UK does very well at. Uh, you know, or another example is, you know, uh, uh, NCSC in the UK uh, actively secures the email and communication system used by members of parliament. And for, you know, obviously, you know, obvious constitutional reasons, you know, NSA is not going to be able to come in and say, hey, Congress, you know, fix your email systems. 
Um, so I mean, that, there's those types of things, but it's difficult to see how they can sort of be blended. I think the, the most obvious ones, like the establishment of NCSE in the first place, uh, have actually been adopted in the US, and that's a good thing. You know, the, the uh, uh, CESA is putting out increasingly, you know, better attribution, more technical details that's sort of following in, in UK footsteps that started with some of that. Um, I think those types of things have done relatively well, and those easy things have been done. We are going to leave it there. Uh, it is now one o'clock in the morning in Ukraine. Uh, it is time for Pone All the Things to go to bed. Um, and, uh, but, uh, thank you for joining us. You're, I would say you're a great American, except that you're a Brit. So you're a great Brit. Um, you're kind of a great honorary American. Um, and, uh, we look forward to having you back on the show. We will be back, uh, on Friday. I'm not sure who the guest is going to be, but we'll figure it out. It'll be cheese night. So there will be cheese. Uh, and, uh, you know, that'll be 46 hours, 47 <laughs> hours from, uh, now. Until then, Genevieve Delaferro. We don't have fun anymore, but in lieu of fun, don't, don't, don't. Because we're not.